as uh, Dustin has alluded to, and um, those of you that have, I don't know, I think it was, was it done here, Dustin, or was it at the New Beginnings when we did Psalms? Yeah. Was it here? Okay. That's right, downtown. Um, give me an idea of what we're going to be doing um, probably through from now through the end of the year. Um, when I teach on the Psalms, one of the things that I like to do is to actually get a little more technical than we might normally get because we're dealing with a very unique genre. Um, I'll be real frank. The Psalms were not something that I appreciated for a good part of my Christian life, and it's because I've never been a poetry fan. Uh, my idea of poetry was as always those liberal hippies, and I can't understand half of what they write. And so I kind of would look at the Psalms, and I would think, I just don't, I just don't get it. You know, I'm much more. Get me into an epistle where I can dig in, I can look at the structure and the grammar, and I can feel it out, you know, and see the arguments and write the outline and even do some diagramming. Um, I just couldn't do that with the Psalms. And so, um, as I matured in Christ, it kind of dawned on me one day. I'm like, wow, that's really kind of kind of stinks because you're writing off a whole section of God's word you need to figure it out and so I decided um, I did quite a bit when I was in college I had three years of Hebrew including some advanced Hebrew and I thought okay I got some of the skills that I need to figure this out you know it's just another genre which there are a lot of them and how you interpret each genre um, might be a little bit different you know tackle historical narrative one way you know you take prophecy another way well I thought I, c- I could figure this out and so I started to, to, to dive in and look at the poetry and it wasn't until I started figuring out the poetry that I began to go oh I kind of get this now and I actually began to fall in love with the Psalms so for some folks that don't like the technical things this might be a little hard meaning you might kind of might want to just uh, just give me the words for others that really like poetry or looking into it, it might really help. Part of the struggle we face is that we're reading Hebrew poetry in English. And it's hard sometimes. And you'll notice that um, in a number of the Psalms we go through, the translations in your English Bibles are going to vary sometimes. And it's because not only is Hebrew difficult sometimes to translate, poetry is especially difficult to translate. And so you'll find different translators will handle a particular text different ways. And so there'll be times where I'll be pointing that out. I'll say, hey, this is what the NET does, or this is what the New American Standard does. And it'll all be designed to help us come to grips with, well, what does it say? What's the nuance here? And so we'll be doing some of that. So I get excited about this kind of stuff. Um, I know Dustin gets excited about this kind of stuff. I hope you do as well. But again, our whole purpose is that we might not just appreciate the words, but we appreciate how the author, many times David, actually says it, because that will then help us to fall in love. It helps us to understand the uniqueness of God's word. It isn't just words on paper. And so when God chose to communicate something to us in poetry, there's a reason why he chose to use poetry to do it, just like historical narrative and other things. And so that's what we're going to try to do here, is point out some of these things. So the approach we're going to take is that I'll kind of give you an idea of what the theme is for the psalm, then I'm going to just talk about the structure and the poetry before we actually get into what I call the teaching. So we're going to talk about, well, look for some of these elements and we'll touch on them in the text. And I'll point them out to you. Then we'll come back and we'll go into, well, now, what is, what's, he, what's his point? What's the teaching? What can we take away from this? So Psalm chapter 23, it's probably one of the most well-known passages in Scripture. Um, it's one that even the unsaved are familiar with oftentimes. It'll be heard at... Um, all kinds of venues and events um, by people who don't necessarily know, love, and serve the Lord. It's just one of those verses, right? What is it most often associated with in your mind? When you hear Psalm 23, you know how it starts off, the Lord is my shepherd. What is it normally associated with? 
death, funerals, right? Well, Dustin alluded to this already. What's striking to me about that is it isn't a death psalm. It isn't a funeral psalm. It has nothing to do with that. Now, could it be used in those instances? Absolutely. But it is actually a psalm that focuses more on this life than that life. It's actually what is referred to as a psalm of confidence or trust. And we're going to see that revealed as we go through this. Now, one of the reasons why it's so often associated with funerals is because of the one line, even though I walk through the valley of death. Therefore, it must be about death. People camp on that. Well, it's not. And I think if we, if we relegate it to that, we don't, we don't then understand the psalm. And so we're going to look at it today and try to understand what David is really doing. And again, it's really a psalm of confidence or trust. It's for here and now. It shouldn't be reserved for just funerals. The main theme, then, is reliance on the Lord. And it's through that reliance on the Lord that we find confidence and trust. So, how is it broken down? Make sure you're in your Bibles there, Psalm 23. The psalm actually begins with an introductory claim, that's verse 1. Okay, So David makes this claim in verse 1. And then he spends the next three or four verses providing evidence to support his claim. And then lastly, he concludes in verse 6 with an affirmation based off of that claim and the evidence. So again, we have three parts to this psalm. We have his introductory statement. He tells us something about the Lord. Then he provides the evidence for that. And then he comes right back around and sums it all up by making this affirmation about the Lord. And so that's the structure. That's our outline today. Now, what about the poetic elements. How are we going to appreciate this today? You've heard before about parallelism. That is probably the most um, often cited element of Hebrew poetry is the parallelism. In English, what's probably the most common element of poetry? How do you know it's poetry usually in English? Anybody? What's that? Rhyme. Exactly. Roses are red, violets are blue, you look like a monkey, you smell like one too, those kind of things, right? So rhyme in English is the most common which oftentimes means that when we have a poem that doesn't rhyme, we go, that's not poetry, it doesn't rhyme, right? Well, in Hebrew poetry, it's parallelism. And parallelism simply means that you have a statement that's made, and then you have a second one, sometimes a third one. Now, there's different kinds of parallelism, and the most common is something called synonymous, which is basically where you say something, and then you say the exact same thing, just in different words. Okay? Well, there's other forms of parallelism, too, that we don't really talk about often, and we're going to see that one a lot today. It's actually called synthetic. And what that is, is you take and you make a statement, and then the second statement doesn't say the same thing, but it expounds or embellishes it. It adds to it. And so, sometimes, you look at it, it's parallel, in the sense that it's synonymous, where it's just repeating the same thing. Just gives us a little more flavor to it. And then other times, he says something and now he wants us to know even more about it. And we're going to see that a lot today. There's also something else that he does here which is kind of interesting with this parallelism. Is most of the time in Hebrew poetry, your parallelism is two lines. And so he says something and then says it again. Then he says something else and says it again. He says something else says it again. Okay? And so there's two lines. And it's just two lines, two lines, two lines, two lines. It builds a cadence as you go through it. Much like our rhyming. Roses are red, violets are blue, da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da. It's the same thing. There's a cadence to it, right? Well, what do you do if you want to change that cadence up? Throw a little twist in there. You add a third line. 
And so we're going to see that today where he changes the cadence in the psalm and he goes to three-line parallelism. So he does two lines, two lines, three, then three, then back to two. And I'll point that out as we, as we get to that. So, and it's designed to change the cadence of the psalm. Okay? It's also designed to cause you to slow down as you read it, to now think about it. So he's going to do a little bit of that as well. There's also metaphors. What's a metaphor? Anybody know what a metaphor is? It's where you say something like, he is a rock. You liken one thing to something else, oftentimes where they're not really all that alike. A person's not like a rock, but there's something they have in common. They're both firm, they're strong. So we're going to see two primary metaphors today. One of them is the Lord is a shepherd. The second one is the Lord is a banquet host or a host. So I'll point that out, those out. Now the last thing I want us to look for here is the last bit, and there's, there's, there's much more to it than this because there's a lot more to Hebrew poetry. I'm trying to strict, stick to some things that are fairly simple that we can see in English. But the last thing I want us to see here is that the author, David, here is going to rely really heavily on some word pictures, or what I want to call vivid imagery. He's going to mention green pastures, quiet waters, paths. He's going to talk about a dangerous valley, a rod and a staff, a banquet table, anointing with oil, overflowing cups. All of those things do what for us? Create pictures in our mind. I could say something like, you know what, I have an abundance. That's not all that exciting. But I could say my cup overflows. That does something different, doesn't it? So we're going to see a lot of those in this text today. So, I know that's a lot of information. I'll point that out as we go through it. It's just kind of a precursor to prepare us for what we're going to do. So let's go ahead and get into the psalm here. Starting in verse 1 of Psalm 23, remember, David begins with this declaration. He says this, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That's our first example of this parallelism I was talking about, this synthetic parallelism. Notice he says, the Lord is my shepherd. And then instead of simply saying he's my shepherd again in a different way, he says, I shall not want. He further explains what that means for the Lord to be his shepherd. It's because the Lord is his shepherd that he doesn't want. Now, what does it mean here? He calls the Lord his shepherd. The, Lord, the, the shepherd metaphor is used throughout the scriptures, isn't it? Where the Lord is referred to as Israel's shepherd. We have a metaphor ourselves with our relationship with Christ, don't we? The same metaphor. He is called the what? The good shepherd. So we see that that metaphor is found throughout the scriptures. In fact, it comes right out of David's life. Doesn't poetry generally originate with something about the author's own life or personal experience? David was a shepherd. And so he's taking it right out of it. David understood what it meant to be a shepherd. We don't always necessarily understand that, do we? Because I don't, I don't know about you guys, I have no sheep in my backyard. Closest I get to sheep is maybe when we go up to Door County and we go to Al Johnson's with the goats on the roof. Now, we lost one of our families that happened to shepherd goats, but most of us don't know what that is. Anybody know what the primary responsibilities of a shepherd is? Somebody help me out. Yeah, first one is protecting the sheep, but it's also caring for them, feeding them. It's, you know, many of us have pets at home and we know that. You know, we have to care for them. So the shepherd not only does that by protecting the sheep from dangerous predators and even poisonous plants. There's stuff in Israel where if they, the sheep eat in the wrong area, they get poisoned. 
And so the job of the shepherd is to not only protect them from predators, angry wolves and other things that want to eat them, but protect them from eating in areas they shouldn't eat, but he also is to provide for them. It says that he gives them pasture. They're supposed, supposed to take them to a place where they can eat and have their fill. So by referring to the Lord as his shepherd, David is reflecting on his trust and his dependence on the Lord's provision and his protection. His provision and his protection. And those two themes are going to come out in this psalm as we do it. So when David says, the Lord is my shepherd, he's saying, he protects me, he provides for me. And he places himself under the care of him. So this is again a psalm of of confidence and trust in the Lord. And he uses this fantastic metaphor of the shepherd to communicate that to us. Rather than just saying, eh, he protects me. He gives us a picture we can walk away with. Very creative in the way that he says it. Now it's because he recognizes that the Lord is his shepherd that he can declare this trust in the Lord. Notice the New American Standard says, I shall not want because he's my shepherd. Um, I would prefer to translate that as I lack nothing. I think that's a better rendering of the text. In fact, the NET and the NIV do just that. The idea there is that he doesn't have any needs because all of his needs are met by his shepherd. So because the Lord is his shepherd, David knows that he has absolutely everything he needs. He does not lack anything. And this is a a complete and total declaration on his dependence and trust on the Lord. So that's his proposition. That's what he wants us to walk away with from this psalm. For us personally, it'll mean that he's our shepherd as well, and we'll, we'll touch on that. Now, he's made his proposition for us. Now he's going to support it. He's going to tell us why it is that the Lord is his shepherd. And he does that in verses 2 through 5. Now, there's three specific things that David focuses on for his evidence. The first one is that he reflects on the fact that the Lord, his shepherd, actually provides for him. And he's going to tell us how. Look at verses 2 and 3. He says, He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. There's our parallelism again. The first stitch it's called. is He makes me lie down in green pastures. That's a great word picture, isn't it? Get that in your head as you look at that. The shepherd's out there. The sheep are all lying down. The fields are green, which means what? It's not like my backyard right now, which is all brown. Amy came in yesterday, she goes, my lawn is dead. I said, I know. But the last time I tried to water it, I got an $85 bill from the city. I thought, I'm not doing that. That was for one and a half waterings. You know, so no. My dog doesn't need to go out and eat the grass in the backyard. I have no sheep. It's okay if it's brown. But David says, he makes me lie down in green pastures, the best of the best. Creates this great word picture for us. But then he embellishes on that thought. Remember, this is... A form of parallelism that doesn't just repeat the same thing, but gives us more to it. He embellishes and he says, he leads me to quiet waters. Now, why is that important? I love streams. Amy's an ocean person. I love myself. I would much rather go up in the the woods in northern Wisconsin and be by lakes and streams. But you know something? It's very hard to drink from a stream if the waters are raging by. And so David says here, no, these are quiet waters. They're the best kind of waters for the sheep. The sheep are small. They get too close. They get dragged away. And he says, no, he provides me not just with green pastures, but quiet waters to drink by. So what he tells us here is that the Lord provides for him. And the first thing he provides is for his physical needs. 
the green pastures, the water to drink. He also, David says, provides for his spiritual needs. That's kind of an interesting one. Look at verse 3. He says, He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So he provides for emotional needs here. You know, the word for soul that's used here is a very common word in the Hebrew, but it's used at least in 20 different ways in the Old Testament. This is one of the problems with some of our Bible study where, you know, we open up our Bible and we have a strong concordance, we look up a word and it's like, oh, the word means this. No, the word doesn't mean this. Usage is more important than the definition. Because usage determines everything. You start with the definition. Well, this this word, nephesh, is used over 20 different ways in the Old Testament. And so we have to figure out what it is, what it refers to. I believe that in this particular context, and this is one of the ways that this word is used, that it actually has to do with one's spiritual and emotional part of who he is. And so when he says here that he restores my soul, another way to think of that is that it's this idea of restoring that emotional and spiritual life. It's kind of like a vintage car. In fact, the word for restore here, the particular, um, there's, there's shapes to Hebrew words where there's stems that are used and tenses that are used, and those oftentimes tell you exactly how that one word is to be understood. And the way that, the, the way that David structures this particular word is just that, this idea of, of bringing something back to its pristine condition. And so when he says he restores my soul, it's like he wakes up or brings back joy or brings back life. Think about that for a moment. Um, when you've been encouraged by somebody, by a brother or sister in Christ, where you're maybe down in the dumps or you're having a rough day, and somebody just comes and they just lift you back up and you feel that life kind of come back. And that's, that's what David has in mind with this particular psalm and this particular word and structure here. Is that it revives that soul, that inner part of us. Gives it back life. It's like, again, kind of the idea of taking an old car and restoring. We look at it and go, yeah, it's just like it was when it walked off that showroom. That's the kind of the idea that David has in mind here. But you know, it does something else. Because of the parallelism here, he's going to, again, embellish us and tell us how this happens. You notice, if you look at verse 3, I think it's verse 3 here. He says, He restores my soul and guides me in paths of righteousness for His namesake. So how does the Lord restore that emotional, spiritual part of David? It says He does it by guiding him in paths of righteousness for His namesake. So there's this element of teaching Leading, instructing, feeding, if you will. Um, there's a gentleman that I've been talking to quite a bit on the phone. He's an old friend of ours, and I think I've shared before, he's been going through some very difficult marriage issues right now. Um, his wife has left him, and um, he's living a hard life right now. And uh, so he calls me fairly frequently, and we talk. And so this, I think it was two days ago, we are talking, and got into the book of James over the phone, and we talked through part of James and what God is doing through trials and it's interesting because as we got into James chapter 1 and I began to remind him that what James tells us in, in, a verse, uh, in the first few verses of, of his letter is that we are to consider it joy because we know and the word that's used there is a word for emotional or not emotional but for um, experiential knowledge. He says consider it joy because you know by, by your experience that God will use this to build endurance 
And when that endurance has its perfect work done in you, you will be complete, perfect, lacking nothing. And as we talked through that, it was interesting because you could just see his countenance change. He got excited on the phone. He's like, you know what? Yeah, no matter what happens, God is going to use this. God is going to... And you could just see life get breathed back into him. Why? The Lord is instructing, leading him in paths of righteousness. And he used the text to do that. didn't use me to do that. He used James to do that. God's word to do that. And so David says, he leads me in these paths. And David in his own mind understands what that means. Because elsewhere in the scripture, David makes it really clear that meditating and focusing on God's word is what does that. That's where we get our paths. That's where God leads us and directs us. And so he says, that's what the Lord does. He restores me by leading me and guiding me in paths of righteousness. And it says here he does it for his name's sake. That's where our confidence comes from. Anything God does for himself is guaranteed, folks. I would much rather God do things for himself, for his glory, than for me any day. Why? Because if it's being done for him, and I get to go along for the ride, it is absolutely guaranteed. It is a good thing. And so David says, he does this for his name's sake. That's where my confidence comes from. That's why my soul is restored. This is all about God doing with me what he wants to do. And so David tells us that he not only has his physical needs met by the shepherd, but he has his emotional, spiritual needs met by the shepherd as well. Now we can also broaden that out to our eternal needs spiritually. I don't believe that's what David specifically has in mind here, but it certainly applies. Think about that for a second. In the same way that David referred to the Lord as his shepherd, we've already alluded to the fact that we have a good shepherd as well, too, don't we? I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 6 real quickly here. Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. We're going to read a chunk here. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body or what you put on. Is not life more than food and body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. But they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet the Heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, being worried, can add a single life or a single hour to his life. And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry when saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? Or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Jesus just told us there, he will take care of our physical needs. Just like David said his shepherd would take care of his physical needs. The Lord also promised to take care of our emotional needs, believe it or not. I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. Starting in verse 4. 
He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. For the Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And then he says this, And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. He will take care of our emotional needs as well. Just like David. Lastly, just like David understood, he promises to meet our spiritual needs as well. I want you to turn to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. You know this passage. Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. So we see the exact same things. David, as he referred to the Lord as his shepherd, knew that he would meet his physical, emotional, and spiritual needs. Jesus has promised us those exact same things. So our good shepherd meets those needs for us as well. So the first thing that David reflects upon, his first evidence, is that the Lord provides for him. That's the role of the shepherd. The second thing that David focuses on as evidence is that the shepherd protects. So he not only provides, but he protects him. You go back to Psalm chapter 23 mentioned I'd try to keep us focused on some of the poetry and what he does here. Notice so far that in Psalm 23, the poetry has all been this two-line parallelism. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness. And then he adds his third one, for his namesake. Well, he switches now to this three-line parallelism because he's going to change up the cadence a little bit. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Here's the third. For you are with me. He does the same thing in the next. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. And so he kind of changes up the cadence of this psalm now, where he goes from two-line parallelism to three-line. Three-line. And part of the reason to do that is because he's going to get to the very last statement and change back to two. And so it's kind of a way of keeping you awake through the psalm and changing up the cadence a little bit. And so he does that here as he gets into the second evidence that the Lord protects. Notice he says in verse 4 that the Lord never leaves him, so there's no fear. He says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. That's about protection. He even tells us here exactly how the shepherd is going to do that. He uses the word with, and he says, Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So when you put this together, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil because you are with me. And then he tells us what that with me refers to. It's his rod and his staff. Think about that. How does the sheep know that the shepherd is with him? He is directed and cared for by by, by two tools that the shepherd had in his arsenal, if you will. There are two specific things that the shepherd carried with them. The first one was what some have referred to as a club. It's intended basically to keep the sheep protected from predators. He would use it as a weapon to fend off wild animals. Okay? 
It's referred to sometimes in the scriptures as the rod, but it's more of like a club. But then there's a second piece of equipment that the shepherd carried with him. It's referred to as the staff, or some have referred to it as a crook. When I was lifeguarding, we had what we called a shepherd's crook. I don't even think they use it anymore. When you did your lifeguard training, did they use a shepherd's crook, the big pole with the hook on it? No, but I can remember. Yeah. You always saw them when you'd go in the pool. You would not only see what we called the ring buoy on the wall, which is the ring, but you would also see this long pole with a hook on the end of it. It was called a shepherd's crook. And what we would do is we were always taught the last thing you want to do is go into the water if you could avoid it. Because if you go into the water to rescue somebody and they're flailing around, they're going to grab you. And so we went through stages. The first thing you'd do is maybe you grab the ring boy and throw it to him. You know? Second thing would be grabbing that shepherd's crook to reach in. If you can reach in and grab him with that and pull him to the shore. Because you've got to keep yourself safe because if the rescuer goes down, then nobody's there, right? The last thing you did is you jump into the water to go grab them and then we had all these techniques for getting out of embraces and if they grab you or your hair or your eye try to take you down then you had to figure out how to get out of that kind of stuff so that's what that shepherd's crook was used for you put it into the water grab them and pull them back like I said I don't really know that they use those things necessarily anymore they have different techniques that they use um, for rescuing well the primary purpose of that tool when it came to the shepherds was to be able to reach down and to grab sheep if they fall into a crevice or if they get out of line the shepherd could reach over and pull them back and so the, what David actually is describing here by using these word pictures of this club or this rod and this shepherd's crook, he uses it as, as basically as to, a way to say, because of those tools, the sheep know that they're being protected. It represents something. And it's that presence in their life that, ha- that helps them to understand that the shepherd is there to care for them. And so when I think about that, I wondered, you know, do we have something similar in our own lives when it comes to the Lord? How do we know that the Lord is with us? We can't see Him physically. So how do we know that, just like David says, I know you're with me because of your rod and your staff. Well, I think we have something that we're holding in our hands this morning, for one, right? This right here. It's designed to protect us, to lead us, to guide us. God has left us with a pretty amazing book. In fact, the Bible promises that our salvation is secure in Christ, and the reason we know it's secure in Christ is because he's told us that right here. Turn to Romans chapter chapter 8 with me. Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. You know this passage as well. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why do we have the confidence we do? How do we know that the Lord is with us? How do we know that He won't abandon us or leave us? How do we know He's going to stay there to protect us? Well, just as the shepherd reminds the sheep as he's walking along the path and taps them with the crook, or an animal comes in to attack and he takes out his club and beats the wild animal off, just as those things prove to the sheep and show to the sheep that they're being protected, we've got the Word of God. It does the same thing. Turn to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. 
verses 23-26. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him and will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So we have the second tool, if you will. We've got the Word of God, but we've got a second thing, and it's the Helper. And so just like David is saying, you know, the Lord is my shepherd. There's this rod and this staff that he uses to constantly show me that he's with me. That he won't abandon me. And because of that, I don't have to have any fear. What do we have? Something very similar. A rod and a staff. The word and the helper. Who constantly do that in our lives. To remind us that the shepherd is there. We don't need to fear. So just as the shepherd has his rod and his staff, our great shepherd uses his rod and his staff the Word and the Helper, to do the same thing. The last thing that we see here, this specifically, the third and final thing that David reflects upon in terms of this evidence is that the Lord honors him. So the Lord as a shepherd not only provides for him and protects him, but even says that the Lord honors him. Look at verse 5 of Psalm chapter 23. He's going to change the metaphor on us now. He's been, been using this metaphor of the shepherd to teach us. Now he's going to change that metaphor to something completely different. It's this metaphor of a, of a host. And the picture is that of a, a banquet. The host is the one who holds the banquet. So he's going to transition into this. Look at verse 5. It says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil, my cup overflows. Now banquets were generally held as a time of celebration and thanksgiving, but they were often thrown or held in somebody's honor. It was a way to honor somebody. And that's actually what we see here. David is in a place of honor at this banquet. There's three amazing word pictures that represent this that David uses. The first is the table. He says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemy. Notice that the table is spread, it says, before David. It means the Lord sets this table up and it's all for David. And it says that he does it in front of his enemies. David is the guest of honor at this banquet. He's the honored guest. So the first visual image here is this giant table that is set up. And you can almost imagine what that might look like. With all the food and the gold and the silver utensils and all that. The second word picture here is this idea of anointing. He says in the second half of verse 5 there, you have anointed my head with oil. Anointing there is a sign of blessing and honor. You can almost picture that. The Lord walking over to David and anointing David's head with oil, much like Samuel the prophet did. But this is the Lord himself doing it. He anoints my head with with oil. He gives me a sign of blessing and honor at this table. And again, doing this all in front of my enemies. The third word picture is this overflowing cup. He says at the very end of verse 5, My cup overflows. It's clearly a reference to abundance. 
And again, it's the Lord providing it to his guest of honor, which means that he is not just honoring him, but he is honoring him with abundance. It's a great word picture, isn't it? Sitting down at this table, guest of honor in front of your enemies, the Lord caring for everything. should be the other way around, shouldn't it? You know what was striking to me about this? As I thought about this, and I was like, you know, that's kind of strange, because we always think we are to honor the Lord. Right? But did you ever think about the Lord honoring us? So I asked the question, huh, the Lord, David is making it pretty clear that the Lord is honoring him here. And he clearly doesn't deserve it, nor do we. So I, I wondered, what about us? Check this out. Read John chapter 12 with me. John chapter 12, verse 26. Jesus speaking. I'll start in verse. Um, I'll start in verse twenty-five. He who loves his life loses it, or whoever loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal, for life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, what does it say? The Father will honor him. That kind of jumped out at me. If anyone serves me, the Father's going to honor him. So if I serve Jesus Christ, just like David, the Lord will honor me for that. Turn to First um, John chapter four. Or hold on a second. First um, Peter. I'm sorry. First Peter. First Peter chapter one verses six and seven. In this way you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now here's what's interesting about this text. He says it's it's our faith having been tested, that will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What he's talking about there is our praise, our glory, and our honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, all those things are true of Christ, but in this particular context, Peter is saying that if your faith is tested, ultimately it will result in praise, honor, and glory for you. Ultimately by the Father. Kind of interesting. Because I've never thought about that concept before. Now we know that there's a, a giant banquet to be held at the end of time. It's one involving the bride of Christ and the marriage supper of the Lamb. And in many respects, the bride, the church, is the honored guest. And so this picture of the shepherd, or I'm sorry, the host here, honoring David is something that is true of God's saints. And so just as David is honored for his love, devotion, and faithfulness to his Heavenly Father, the same is true of us. Even the New Testament confirms that our faithfulness to Christ will ultimately be honored by the Father. You may have never thought about that. It's a pretty interesting concept. 
So now what we have here is David's proclamation that the Lord is a shepherd. He now has provided us with the evidence of that, the fact that the Father, the shepherd, not only provides for him, protects him, and honors him, but he's now going to move on to the last statement he makes, which is this affirmation, which is built off of those things. Look at verse 6. And this is a promise that David believed, and it's one that is made for us as well. Surely, he says in verse 6, goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now just from a poetic element, he's gone from those three-line parallelism that he's just gotten through, where he changed up the cadence, so now he flips back to the traditional standard two-line. It's very easy. Surely, goodness and loving kindness, that's covenant loyalty, Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And then what's the result of that? I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So he ends with this affirmation that points to two undeniable truths. There's two things that he finds in there. The first one is the Lord's goodness and faithfulness. He tells us that right out. Your goodness and your Loving kindness, it's another way of saying your covenant loyalty, your faithfulness. Surely your goodness and faithfulness, it'll follow me all the days of my life. Remember, this is a psalm about here and now. It's not just a psalm about after death. He's talking about right here, right now. And he's confident that this Lord's, that the Lord's goodness and faithfulness will always be with him. The second undeniable truth he says there is that he will remain in the Lord's presence forever. These two things are also true of us because of our Good Shepherd. I want you to turn to a couple of passages, and we'll use these passages to kind of wrap this up. Turn to 1 Corinthians 1 9. First Corinthians 1 9. We see this throughout the Bible. God is faithful through whom you were called into the fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. The Lord is faithful. That's what David says. The goodness and loving kindness of the Lord will be with me all the days of my life. God is faithful. Look at what he does in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? For he who promised is faithful. You don't have to turn here with me, but I'll mention it. Second Corinthians, Thessalonians, chapter three, verse three, he says, "The Lord is faithful; He will establish you and guard you from the evil one." Repeats that in Second Timothy, chapter two. Even, and this is the most striking one to me, even when we are faithless, He remains faithful because He can't deny Himself. Remember when David says that He did all this for His sake. Meaning the Lord did this for David for his sake. Well, it's very similar here that the Lord remains faithful to us because he can't deny himself. It's for his sake. So we see reflected in these verses as well that the Lord is faithful. Just as David says of the shepherd himself, his goodness and his faithfulness will stay with me forever. But then he goes on and he says that he will be in the presence of the Lord forever. That's true of us as well, and I'll close with this. Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22. Verse 
Then he showed me a river, and this river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming up from the throne of God and the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river was this tree of life bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His bondservants will serve Him. They will see His face, in other words, they will be in His presence, and His name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need for light of the lamp or the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and here it is, and they will reign forever and ever. And you could probably add to that, and ever, and ever, and ever. So just as David reflects on the Lord as his host, and the Lord as his shepherd, he says, my affirmation is this, he will never forsake me, his faithfulness and his goodness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will forever be in his presence. The same exact promises given to us as followers of Jesus Christ. It's a pretty amazing little psalm, isn't it? It's unfortunate that it gets relegated to we only think about it at times of death because he has a lot more to say about life here and now today because he says he protects me today. He provides for me today. And in some respects, he even honors me today. Think about our faithfulness to Christ. It's honored all the time by the Lord. We may may not always see it in these concrete forms and fashions, but we're promised that. Now, ultimately, in the end, we'll be honored. But this is a great psalm about life here, now, today, recognizing the Lord as our shepherd. It's not to be relegated just to life after death. something we should be thinking through today. He guides me today. He leads me today. He shepherds me today. Great little psalm. I hope you guys kind of appreciate that. Maybe some of the the poetry, the way that it's kind of laid out, will continue to do this. Like I said, probably through the end of the year with different psalms. I try to focus on psalms that are not quite as well known sometimes. Um, This is probably one of the most well-known ones that we'll, we'll touch on. But uh, we'll continue our our march through the psalms. Um, I'm going to try to remember to send out the psalm the week before so you guys can read up on it. Um, I just get caught up in, you know, uh, working a day job to pay the bills and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I'll try to remember to do that, Um, especially since I have to send him to Dustin anyway so he can prepare the music. But why don't we go ahead and pray and then we'll spend some time singing. Father, thank you so much for David's words here. Um, What an amazing picture of you as our shepherd. And... um, just what it reminds us of. We know that you protect us and provide for us. And wow, to even honor us for our faithfulness to you. And um, we thank you for that. We thank you for the way that you care for us. We thank you that Jesus was willing to do what he did as our good shepherd. 